Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Today we're talking with Hank Glassman, who's written a new book called The Face of Jizo, Image and Cult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism. The book looks at the iconography, the art, the folktales, and the rituals surrounding the Bodhisattva Jizo in Japan. Um, Jizo was a, a rather ubiquitous figure in Japanese religiosity, and uh, over the centuries he's come to be associated with, with death, with the hell realms, with women, children, and childbirth, um, as well as being sort of the the uh, Buddhist saint of uh, travelers and protector of travelers. Um, some of our listeners no doubt know of a, of a very uh, common ritual in Japan nowadays uh, called the Mizuko Kuyo, which is a ritual uh, specifically for aborted or stillborn fetuses. Um, and Jizo plays a very important role in uh, in that ritual. Um, and so Professor Glassman's book really explores how it is that Jizo became this central figure that he is in Japanese Buddhism. Um, his book is, uh, is quite simply a joy to read. There are so many, uh, really great stories surrounding, uh, Jizo, his past lives, um, and, and also stories about certain images and certain, uh, icons or, or, or statues of Jizo. Um, Jizo is a, a very literally moving figure who, um, uh, it moves about Japan, uh, quite, uh, quite a lot. And, uh, this book is extremely well written and is accessible and a joy to read. And so without further ado, let's get to the interview. So today we're talking with Professor Hank Glassman, who has written a new book called The Face of Jizo, Image and Occult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism. Hi, Hank. How are you doing today? Good, good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I, uh, I I really uh, enjoyed this book. Um, Japanese Buddhism is not my area of specialty, but I certainly have a, an affinity for Japanese Buddhism. And um, uh, in full disclosure, many years ago, I took a couple classes from uh, Hank when he was here in California. Um, and uh, I can honestly say those classes were some of the highlights of my graduate education. Um, and Sweet. this Thanks. book was actually sort of a, a fun... Uh, reminiscence of the kinds of uh, questions and issues that we discussed in those seminars. Um, so it was a pleasure to read. Um, but before we get into the book itself, um, welcome again to the show. And um, we always like to start off with a couple quick questions about um, just who who you are, Hank, <laughs> your, your background and how you came to uh, study Buddhism and, and Japanese religion. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I have different versions of this. I, t- I, I tell, but um, I, I was raised in Houston, Texas, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, in a secular, uh, reformed Jewish family. Um, what felt a draw to religion was interested in religion, uh, and um, uh, ultimately found the the faith that I was in at the time unfulfilling. Uh, and didn't think much about it. Uh, after that, in in college, I began to study Japanese language uh, through a couple of uh, coincidences and and uh, 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 sort of happenstances, and I enjoyed that very much. And after college, uh, or sort of during college too, during the summer, I ended up in Japan quite a few times, and I had an interest in Buddhism, but but I had a kind of a growing affinity, uh, and uh, eventually. Uh, I saw that this might be something that I might pursue in graduate studies, 
Uh, and uh, then I've, I've sort of ended up where I am now, uh, which is teaching at Haverford College, which is a small uh, liberal arts college with Quaker roots in suburban Philadelphia, uh, uh, which is along with Bryn Mawr College. It's a, a women's college also in the deep history, uh, also a Quaker institution. So that's a little bit about who I am, how I got here. Great. Um, and uh uh, what, what, what was the what was the connection with Japan and specifically, I guess, why this interest in Jizo and why the you know sort of led you to uh, to come to write this book? Yeah, well, I, I actually um, had visited Japan with my parents very briefly, uh, maybe in fifth grade or something like that, probably 1975 around then, uh, and and uh, it was a very brief visit, uh, less than less than a week, I'm sure, uh, but the. Uh, aesthetic uh, qualities of the country, the built environment, uh, both traditional and modern, uh, the shoji, the tatami, uh, the deep bath, the uh, genkang uh, gardens, uh, ultra-modern buildings, uh, ultraman uh, on the top roof of one department store, and uh, the shock to realize that ultraman was Japanese. I'm not sure what I thought, uh, where I thought he was from. But anyway, so so an interest in Japan that, that was sort of latent and largely of an, uh, I guess I would say, an aesthetic uh, nature, an aesthetic draw to the country uh, and uh, uh, to a lot of things about Japan. Um, and, uh, right, what was the other question? Uh, draw to Japan. And, and, and this particular subject of Jizo and this uh, was oh, yes. led to the book itself. Yes. Uh, when I was in Japan... Uh, for the first time as an adult, uh, during some summer during college, I started noticing Jizo images. And uh, I had taken a couple of courses, uh, excellent courses, with uh, uh, Professor Paul Watt at Columbia, who uh, uh, is now uh, moved on to a different post from uh, DePaul University, where he taught for a long time. Um, uh, excellent courses on Japanese Buddhism, but we had never heard of this deity, Jizo. So I thought, oh, that's odd that we wouldn't have heard of, of this. Uh, and, and I saw uh, one, you know, with the bibs and the hat and a, a, a kind of a wooden uh, shrine on a street corner. And I said, okay, there's one. Saw another one, took a photograph, another photograph, uh, one sort of with a whole board through it and a chain and, and chain to a Coke machine. And it was like, okay, take a picture of that one. And I just take taking pictures of more, more of them, uh, some modern kind of cutesy Mizuko ones, not really sure what they were, uh, I guess 20, 19 or 20 years old at this point. Um, and then I went with my friend uh, who I was traveling with, uh, Max Mormon, uh, you might know, um, to Koyasan. And when I got off the to called cable car there, uh, and and we walked up to the to the graveyard. Um, I saw so many Jizo images that I, I I had said I was going to take pictures of all the Jizo images I saw, <laughs> uh, all the Jizo statues I saw. When we got to Koyasan, right? This is before digital photography, of course, right? It's nineteen eighty five or six, I guess four or five, five, yeah, eighty nineteen eighty five. So it's before digital photography. So even if I could have bought the film. Even with a digital camera, you couldn't really capture all the Jizo images at Koyasan um, uh, of every f- different kind of form. So, so basically, when we were there, when we were at Koyasan, I said to myself, you know, this is really interesting the way that these graves are somehow 
broken fragments of graves are somehow being used again as as deities in the crotches of these ancient trees. And this is really interesting and and and, and speaks to me a lot. Uh, then when I went to eventually pursue graduate studies first in Japan and then the United States, I would tell uh, senior Japanese scholars. Um, They'd say, what are you going to work on? What are you working on? You know, a young grad student. Mm-hmm. I'd say, Jizo, Cult of Jizo. And they would kind of laugh and shake their heads. And I never <laughs> took me a long time to figure out what that meant. And eventually I realized that, that it was such, it's such an enormous topic and such a broad topic and a varied topic that, that there's a sort of dismay of like, well, that's a, that's an awfully broad answer. <laughs> Good luck with that. So, so, you know, really what I, uh, into graduate school, I realized I was not going to write my dissertation on Jizo. It was just too, he uh, was just too deep and broad uh, and, and massive a topic for, with the skills I had uh, to try to write a book on. So I wrote the dissertation on a different topic, um, uh, sort of related, but still different topic. So uh, it, it, it has taken me all this time uh, from what is it? 85 to 2012. <laughs> to finally produced this. So I'm happy it's out. Um, and uh, right, so that's that was the interest in Jizo is that that he was a deity I had never seen before um, in class and seemed so ubiquitous in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then one more thing I'll say about it is that that one thing I realized while I was in Japan was that Jizo was very much associated in contemporary Japan uh, at certain sites with uh, abortions and with stillborn and miscarried children and so on. People said to me, Japan is the is the protector of, of uh, women, children, and travelers. And as I began to research Jizo over a, a couple of years, I, I realized that in the Heian period, there was no particular special association, for the most part, between Jizo and women, and certainly none between Jizo and children. Mm-hmm. And Jizo and travelers was not really something that, that I saw in the texts either. Jizo was primarily a savior in the hells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my big question beginning my research was, how and where and when and why did Jizo go from being uh, a savior in the hells to... Uh, first a protector of women in childbirth and then later a, a protector of the infant dead uh, and, and with that travelers too. So that, that's the question the book tries to answer, I think. So to, to give a little bit of uh, background um, for those uh, of our listeners who might not know, um, Jizo is, of course, a bodhisattva, but um, if you could t- just sort of explain a little bit about Jizo in general. And I know that, uh, you know, being a protector in hell, um, he's got a much different role in China um, that you talk a little bit about that in the book um, that I think would be helpful just to sort of give people some understanding of how bodhisattvas um, in East Asia uh, function. Yeah, thank so you. Very- yeah, that's great. Um, Jizo is a bodhisattva, which means in a certain sense that he's a, de- a, a being destined to become a Buddha. But like a lot of bodhisattvas in East Asia, uh, he takes a vow, and this is something quite foreign to people uh, I know uh, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, and this has become to my attention uh, again a few times recently. Um, 
people who know Tibetan Buddhism often feel there must be some mistake uh, here in, in, in the description of what's going on. And I just want to assure listeners that, that this is that what I'm saying is accurate, uh, that, that it's, it's possible that, that one might feel that uh, East Asian Buddhism has it wrong. But, but this, is, this is the way uh, a, a, a bodhisattva is looked at, and particularly in the case of Jizo, in a certain way, uh, Dizong in China, in a certain way, he is the um, quintessential uh, bodhisattva. Uh, that is, uh, what the gist of Dizong's vow uh, says is that until all of the hells are empty, he will not attain Buddhahood. Okay, So what it means is that uh, he's in it for the long haul, uh, that he will make sure that uh, everyone else, as it were, uh, is saved before him, that, that, that he'll postpone his own enlightenment to remain in the world saving beings. He's also called the Achantika Bodhisattva or Isendai no Bosatsu. Uh, there's a kind of a being within Yogacara Buddhism called the Achantika. And the idea is this kind of a being just can't get anything right and constantly is falling into the hells again and again, no chance for redemption. So Jizo is often called the Achantika Bodhisattva because even though he's a high being and could get, gain Buddhahood at any time, uh, if he so intended, uh, he instead chooses to, 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 to be born in the hells again and again. Um, another way to look at Jizo or another way Jizo has been to, described in, in the literature about him uh, is that he's a the master yogi. Um, he rises uh, every morning uh, in the pre-dawn hours uh, to enter into deep trance, a deep samadhi, and, and uh, manifest uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, avatar bodies to go out into the world and uh, save and teach beings. Um, so there's a lot of diff- those are all very traditional uh, uh, ideas about Jizo. I would say from China, uh, Jizo is really a deity who who first uh, is developed in China during the um, probably around the uh, late seventh century, uh, and and becomes popular even later than that. So he he's quite late on the scene. He takes the form of a monk, which is different than most bodhisattvas. That is, most bodhisattvas have a elaborate hairdo and a headdress and jewelry. Uh, Jizo does have some jewelry, uh, usually, um, but uh, and in Chinese depictions, often a, uh, the cloth uh, headscarf of a traveler, but his head is shaved like that of a monk, uh, and he carries a monk's staff and wears monk's robes. So he's a different kind of bodhisattva in that way. Um, in Chinese Buddhism, uh, and in throughout East Asian Buddhism, Korea, Japan too, uh, he's seen as presiding over the six paths of rebirth, the kinds of different destinies that, that the dead could be reborn into, um, of hungry ghosts and uh, the hell realms, uh, uh, animal realms, human realm, uh, the Ashura fighting demon realms, uh, uh, the heavenly realm, and I'm not sure if I said animals, but they're there too. Mm-hmm. Um that he presides over the six realms and in this way also uh, is plays an important role in the hells uh, as a, a psychopomp or a leader of the soul through the afterworld, um, but also uh, as a an advocate for the dead with the Ten Kings. The Ten Kings are a, a tribunal who judge the dead in, in hell in East Asia. This is a, a concept that develops in China uh, during the Song period primarily uh, from the 10th century on or so. Um, uh, or really from earlier periods, but, but in a fully formed way. Um, but anyway, 
the 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 thing is that in Japan, uh, Jizo becomes identified directly with the king of hell, mm-hmm. uh, Emma, uh, Emma or Yama Wang in in Chinese, uh, this king Yama, and uh, it's said, uh, for instance, in the in the very uh, opening uh, pages of. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's kind of a storytelling text that I'm reading today uh, on the, the pictures of the six of the six realms, which starts off with hell, naturally enough. Um, uh, it says, uh, uh, Emma, uh, Emma looks fierce uh, on the outside, but his, his heart is that of Jizo, and he's uh, a compassionate and, and wise uh, uh, counselor or something like that. So, so there's this idea that, that Jizo and Emma are the same. Uh, in this case, you're, 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 your advocate, your lawyer, <laughs> judge, in fact, uh, who's who's meeting out the the both the decision and the punishment uh, are in fact the same. So you can rest assured that you'll be saved. So he's a very gentle savior, a very approachable savior. Uh, there's a common expression in uh, Japanese um, that 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 the title is partially derived from. Um, upon seeing uh, someone, you know, you've. Uh, uh, well, let's just uh, let's say you're 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 arrested on a misunderstanding. You're thrown in jail. You don't have your wallet. It's a case of mistaken identity. You can't show you you are. Your friend shows up at the jail, and you say, "Oh my gosh, I feel as if I've seen the face of Jizo in hell." Right? So, so glad that you were here. I'm you of all people. I'm so glad to see you. Uh, is uh, people uh, often and maybe more so in the past <laughs> say uh, you. Know, Oh, I've seen the I've seen the face of Jizo in hell. You know, thank you so much for coming. Um, so there's this idea that he's quite approachable as a as a human looking bodhisattva, and also there's a uh, kind of a blurring effect, I guess I'll say, with actual monks throughout history. So uh, because Jizo looks like a monk and monks look like Jizo, there is often this or that monk uh, who is said to actually be Jizo, mm-hmm. or. Uh, there's many legends in which uh, someone has a conversation uh, with a young monk or a small monk or dreams about a young monk or a small monk. Uh, and then later it's revealed that, that the person here was actually Jizo. Um. Hmm. So, so uh, one of the things I loved about this book was that um, it's very, it's filled with stories. <laughs> um, so, uh, in the first chapter, for example, there's all these uh, folk tales you tell of examples of, of these of things that Jizo has done or that uh, actual Jizo statues have done, um, mm-hmm. which is just, I think, a, a really wonderful way to illustrate the, um, the 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 way he's understood within uh, Japanese Buddhist culture. Um, so, can you give us an example of one of these uh, folk tales that you use in the book to to show the uh, you know, specifically, I'm thinking about how Jizo is a very moving. Uh, literally, he's a moving figure. He's he's sort of right. active. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for that question. Yeah. W- one example that is actually not much in the book, but but was one thing that struck me about Jizo early on in my studies, um, is that uh, Jizo is a stone image, right? I mean, these are these are no matter how small they are. I guess the the the, the small musical ones are different, but. But a Jizo image, it's a quite a large piece of stone. It's a heavy, solid thing. It's, it's not going anywhere. Um, and when I was in graduate school at, at University of Tsukuba, uh, working with the late uh, Miyata Noboru, uh, a, a fellow grad student, a folklorist from Korea, 
said, oh, have you seen this book? Have you seen this book? And he handed me a book called Meguri no Folkloa, the, the folklore of a peregrination, let's say, something like that, the folklore of wandering or, or making the rounds. And it was a book about uh, uh, a certain Shinshu community uh, in Japan uh, that would uh, take a Jizo uh, from village to village, uh, fairly large image, but small enough so that, that people, quite <laughs> aged ladies, but fairly heavy, you know, maybe a hundred pound, 150 pound kind of a uh, Jizo image, uh, could, could carry it around from village to village and they would take turns, the different villages caring for the image. And it's called the Mawari Jizo or Meguri Jizo. Um, so I found this very interesting, the idea that, that Jizo would move around and, and the folklorist, uh, uh, I'm sorry, anthropologist who wrote the book, uh, Miyazaki Keizo, too. Um, the, the point of the book is the sort of dynamic nature of the Jizo cult in this case. But yeah, there are there are any number of stories, but but one that I, I like in particular, um, and this is in appears in many collections. I think it's in Konjaku Monogatari, uh, chapter 17. It's also in the Jizo Bosatsu de Genki, the sort of standard miracle tales of Jizo uh, that change, you know, different editions over the years. But anyway, the story is that there's an old lady who lives in the capital of Kyoto, and <clears throat> she's a devotee of Jizo, and uh, her son is no good, and he he won't come help her plant the seedlings and the timing is very critical of putting the seedlings out into the rice paddies. Um, she's been very good about getting these seedlings, this planting the seed, sprouting the seedlings. She's ready to go. The fleet, the floods are, the, the, the fields are flooded. Uh, you know, they're banked with mud. Everything's ready, but she's, she's ill. She's an old woman and she can't go plant these seedlings. Um, and her son is not, is not coming to help her. So, She's in despair. She's worried if she can't get this harvest in, she won't have food to eat. So she prays to Jizo that that somehow, uh, or you know, someone come and help her out of this bind. And 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 uh, when she rises in the morning, she she looks out her door and she sees that all her seedlings are gone and that her fields have been completely her rice paddies. I'm sorry, have been completely planted, uh, and she sees that this is a miracle and she goes back to to look at to to give thanks to her jizo image and what she sees is that the whole lower half of the image the the skirts and the feet of this uh wooden image are are covered in mud from uh, having walked through the rice paddies uh plant her seedlings for her so that's a very kind of that's a story called jizo. it's a very typical kind of story though in which a quite a humble person um is helped in an extremely material way uh, mm-hmm. by jizo and that you know, it's interesting because that that story uh, I think touches on a recurring image that I keep seeing in all these uh, stories of this relationship, particularly between mothers and sons. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, and that there is a there is a relationship between uh, Jizo and, and China, um, but it's a, it's a different uh, the different story of the uh, the the Bodhisattva who goes to hell to save his mother, and um, it's just it's just it's just interesting to me that there is this sort of recurring idea. Uh, of uh or or uh, you know uh, uh some sort of relationship there um right. uh, and and a particularity or i don't know if it's a particularity but a difference in the in the jizo case or dizan case from mulian because of, because the most famous story in in east asian buddhism uh is the story of the disciple of the buddha, buddha the disciple of the buddha Modgalyayana or mulian uh the, that that you're referring to you know that that he goes to he goes to that hell or to the realm of hungry ghosts to save his mother he can't do it on his own but through making offerings to the 
community of monks uh, on a certain day in the summer, when they're coming off summer retreat, uh, people can save their ancestors like Mulian did. Um, there's a very similar story in the past life sutra of, of Jizo or the Dizang Ban Yuan Jing. There's four past life stories of Jizo in there, two in which he was a king who gives up his kingdom to become a Buddha, uh, somewhat to become a Bodhisattva, I'm sorry, somewhat uh uh, you know, reminiscent of the story of the Buddha. The other two stories are quite similar to each other, where, where he's a, a Brahmin girl, uh, basically an aristocratic princess whose mother is bad. Um, she she uh, slanders Buddhism. She doesn't believe in karma or cause and effect. Uh, she doesn't believe in the afterlife. She's a very cynical person. She doesn't give offerings. Uh, she badmouths the three jewels and so on. Um, uh, the daughter who's in one version called bright eyes or guangmu uh does everything she can to convince her mother but she can't and 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 after her mother dies she's very worried about her mother's soul and she goes to a clairvoyant uh who tells her that her mother is is suffering in hell or or in the realm of hungry goats and and she she does everything she can to uh, you know, give away all her goods and all these things to, 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 to somehow improve her mother's fate. And then she's able to do this. And as a result of her real dedication to her mother and all the merit that she piles up to save her mother, she in fact becomes Jizo. So there's two past life stories in which Jizo is a daughter, uh, who saves his mother. Um, so there's a kind of a, a twist there in a certain sense. Hmm. Um, so, so what do you, I mean, uh, what do you make, it's always interesting to me to see bodhisattvas in Asia that sort of uh, transcend gender binary, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. which is a clumsy way of saying that. But um, what do you, what do you make of that, of the ability for these bodhisattvas to speak not only to one particular gender or one particular community, but to sort of transcend those distinctions between male and female or between monastic and lay communities? Yeah. Well, trans- transcending the monastic and lay is one question. Transcending <laughs> yeah. the, the male and female, uh, it's interesting because <clears throat> in certain ways the marking is so inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a genre of nude chizos, uh primarily from the Kamakura period um, uh, and a little bit into the Muromachi period. Uh, these 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 images, they're they're the nude nude images in Japanese uh, Buddhist sculpture are not unheard of, but they're quite rare. And what it means for a Japanese image to be nude uh, is that the image, yes, is nude, but it has clothing on it. The clothing that living people would wear. Maybe the clothing's been made for made for the statue. I mean, particularly if it's three feet tall. Um, uh, maybe it hasn't been. Maybe it's actually someone else, some a real person's clothing, especially if the statue is life size. But anyway, it's clothing that the statue wears. So the statue is not meant to be ex, uh, 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 displayed uh, without clothing on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of a couple of these Jizo images, uh, one particular I'm thinking of, uh, they were famous. Uh, they wore robes. But it was famous that the body underneath was a woman's body. Hmm. Um, and even and this is in a later period than the statue was made. Uh, uh, do I have time for another story here? I'm sorry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a statue, actually, uh, at a place called Enmyoji uh, in Kamakura. Uh, that's a, uh, a probably a, a Maromachi period or probably third, third, uh, a 14th century uh, statue. But it, it, it's... It has a legend that it comes from about 100 years earlier, and it was the the personal statue of a woman 
uh, who was the wife of the most powerful man in the land, a man named Hojo Tokiyori. Hojo Tokiyori was the regent of the shogun. Uh, and I won't go into the sort of um, shadow politics of, of Japan of that period. But anyway, suffice it to say, he was really the power behind the throne. Um, and a lot of legends grew up about him. He was a Jizo worshiper. Um, so was his wife. Anyway, the legend goes um, that uh, Tokiyori and his wife were playing a game called um, Sugodoku, uh, which is a board game, uh, somewhat like uh, Go or, I don't know, somewhat like Stratego. It's, a, it's an odd I'm an odd game. So, so they're playing this game, uh, and the, the, they're, they're playing a strip version of it. So they're just playing two of them, husband and wife, but Tokiori has set the rule. Okay. If I win, I'll get naked. If you win, you have to get naked. And, uh, the wife loses and she's very shy and ashamed. And she prays to Jizo that to share her from spare her from this embarrassment. Uh, Jizo appears, uh, standing on the, board the sugodoku board naked uh with his his monastic robes parted with a woman's body and jizo's head right and uh and the staff and everything and hojo tokiyori is 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 horrified by this and chagrined and apologizes to his wife and apologizes to jizo and they both redouble their efforts to you know to 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 be uh, good buddhists and so on so um this statue gets enshrined then. So the statue in Enmyoji, if you go see there, you see it today, rather than having a lotus base, uh, has the base of a uh, sugodoku board. Huh. So so the deity, the image stands on a sugodoku board. It has uh, uh, cloth robes. And in Edo period, like 18th century, let's say, 19th, 18th and 19th century guidebooks, it says that if you request and you make an extra offering, that you will be able to see that the image in fact has a female body huh. and they'll take it they, they'll part the robes for you and you can look at the image so in this way there's a there's a uh, i don't know what an interesting kind of a reinscription of almost a kind of a peep show but there are jizo images that were said to be female one of the most famous jizo images ever uh, is a jizo image on the tokaido called the nakano jizo um and there's a, a ditty or a poem says this let's take the nakano jizo and marry her to the daibutsu hmm. um, because the thing about jizo is that because he is a monastic um he could as easily be a nun right right uh, and it's often remarked about certain jizo images uh that they are in fact nuns or female or something like that. Uh, the true nude Gisele images, usually it's more that the genitalia uh, is rendered in a very ambiguous way, as you might, uh, might imagine it would be. Um, it's not going to be showing, and it's not uh, It's not really the main event by any means. So, so, so it makes sense to sort of abbreviate that. But, but anyway, you see uh, the ways in which the gender neutrality of Gisele and the gender switching of Gisele from a uh, female in a past life to male uh, in this present life, usually, and sometimes female, um, does serve to relativize the idea of gender, mm-hmm. uh, certainly. And and women have taken Jizo as their model. Uh, one of these new Jizos I'm talking about was commissioned by an 83-year-old nun who wanted to save her mother. Uh, and she said, you know, just like the girl Bright Eyes who became in another life, Jizo, I endeavor to make this merit and save my mother from any suffering she may be undergoing in the next life. So uh, there really was an uh, identification uh, among 
women, even from that period, basically from the, the, the Heian, the Kamakura period on, uh, among women with Jizo, who, who, among women who knew this story of his past lives, uh, as a, as a Brahmin daughter, uh, so-called. So, so you said at the beginning that one of the reasons you were interested in, in pursuing this research was to understand the process by which Jizo became associated with uh, women and children, and not just uh, and, and you know death and travelers and whatnot. And so, it seems like we're sort of getting getting into that. Um, yeah. um, is 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 this gender neutrality of Jizo related to that process? Do you think, or 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 what accounts for that? Hmm. I wonder. Let's see. <laughs> Certainly, certainly the idea yeah, certainly an, a, a predisposition uh, for women in Japan in particular uh, to worship Jizo uh, that developed through the Kamakura period into the Muromachi period was one of the things that laid the groundwork for a cult of safe, safe childbirth dedicated to Jizo later in the medieval period uh, in the 16th period, 16th century, moving into the 17th century. Um, Kanon or Guan Yin in, in China had largely had that role. Uh, in Japan, Jizo comes to challenge in a certain sense, uh, Guan Yin or Kanon, Kanon in Japan uh, for that role. So uh, one of the uh, aspects of uh, Jizo's, Enculturation into Japan or assimilation into Japan is a combination uh, with of this deity with certain uh, local deities. And in Japan, this idea uh, that Buddhist deities would be associated closely with and transformed into and identified with uh, local deities uh, was a very old and important idea. And in the case of Jizo, one thing that happened. Uh, during the medieval period, uh, was that Buddhism began to branch out into small towns and villages. And when Buddhism began to branch out into small towns and villages, and maybe just one priest living in an old battered Jizo hall in, an, in, an, in a village, um, one thing that happened besides increasing uh, burial of the dead in a Buddhist style was an overlay of Buddhist meaning on local religious landscape. So in many villages throughout Japan, uh, particularly in the central uh, and and eastern areas of Japan, uh, during the medieval period uh, and and afterwards, the boundaries of the village would often be marked by large uh, stone, uh, not that large, but, you know, through two, three, four foot stone, uh, what, pillars or obelisks or or, or, uh, mounds. Um, and these were often phallic in shape. So there are these phallic stones that both guard the, the boundaries, uh, a kind of a universal, not universal, but a widespread East Asian uh, belief common in Korea, Japan, uh, China, to name, you know, three modern geopolitical units, but widespread uh, throughout East Asia and Southeast Asia is the idea um, uh that 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 the display of sex and it's it's common in Europe too that the display of sexuality is a prophylactic against uh, danger or any kind of spiritual attack. So the displaying of genitals is a way of uh, of keeping 
uh, evil influences away from the edge of the village. Um, so there are these phallic stones, uh, and they they guarantee fertility, uh, and they also uh, mark the boundaries of the village. And like I said, keep out epidemics and other diseases. These are called the uh, dosojin. And Jizo really becomes associated with these. And uh, if you will, many of these, and this is not as direct a, a, a process as I just try to describe it right now, but uh, a lot of these phallic images quite quickly, uh, with a few slight modifications, become Jizo images. So there's a way in which these old stones uh, that represent the boundary, the limen, the, the kind of separation between the living and the dead, too, um, are are combined or transformed into uh, a Buddhist deity. And one of the reasons this happens is because of the common medium uh, of stone. Uh, So I want to transition to a different kind of statue, though, Mm -hmm. if that's okay. (laughs) Um, You open the second chapter of the book with um, uh, a story about a different kind of Jesus statue. It's actually made of wood. Mm -hmm. Um, And the... The story of this statue in and of itself and, and the way that you describe the, um, a fellow um, Horiguchi Sozan who acquired the statue was just sort of interesting. Um, and I think that it speaks to um, the way these images were used. And this, this, this chapter two is about the monastic devotion to Jizo. So um, I'm wondering if you could just uh, let our listeners know about this, uh, this particular image um, yeah. and and talk about how Jizo was uh, used in a, in a monastic uh, setting as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. This, this object that you're talking about is just, uh, uh, just in a, a breathtaking, incredible, like jewel, like uh, a little statue um, that I had seen photographs of. Uh, and, and, and like the image I was talking about just before this nude uh, Kamakura period image, uh, this, these two images actually are very similar. They were probably made by the same sculptor. They were made around the same time. Uh, they're very, very similar as far as Jizo images. Uh, one thing that's amazing about both images is they have all this stuff inside. So, so that's a shocking thing uh, that was discovered uh, uh, actually long before I was born. Uh, but, but it was shocking when it was discovered because it was uh, some... What seven hundred years or so uh, after uh, the creation of these two images? So the image that that, that you're mentioning uh, is an image that I call in the book the Rockefeller Jizo, because uh, it's now held in the John D. Rockefeller the Third collection in the Asia Society in New York City, uh, and it's imminent, it's an image um, uh, that I've I've seen on display a, a couple of times, and it is. Uh, uh, like the Denkoji Jizo, the new Jizo that I talked about uh, just before, uh, it's quite small. Uh, it's a little less than three feet tall, um, and it is a, rendered in beautiful, uh, immaculate detail. And unlike a lot of statues that we have from the Kamakura period, uh, it retains quite a bit of its gold leaf uh, filigree uh, and also some color uh, in the robes. So, when we think of Japanese Buddhist sculpture, we think of very dark black images with little spots of color here and there. Um, it's hard for us to remember that these images were brightly painted. Uh, even the faces were painted white or gold or whatever, and the hands and so on. Each thing was painted a different color. It's very hard for us to remember this, but seeing this image, you see uh, it's not gaudy, don't get me wrong, uh, but if there's enough remaining there that you see uh, some of this real beauty coming through. Anyway, so... Um, 
uh, it is monastic devotion. It's also aristocratic devotion. So these monastics that we're talking about in both of these projects, the, the, the new Gizo project and the, and the Rockefeller Gizo project, uh, were from a fairly small community of, uh, Fujiwara family members, uh, the members of the most powerful family in Japan at the time, uh, advisors and regents to the, to the emperor. Um, and many of those, uh, family, members became the most important and powerful clerics in the land. So their family shrine uh, was is a, a shrine called the Kasuga Shrine in Nara. And through the system that I was talking about uh, in more general terms before of making Buddhist deities into Japanese ones, uh, something called Honji Suijaku or, or the trace uh, the the original ground and trace manifestations uh, in, in the interest of saying, look, our Japanese gods, our ancestors, in the case of Fujiwara family, have Buddhist equivalents. Uh, they matched the four, uh, later five, uh, um, Kasuga gods to Buddhist deities. Anyway, the third Kasuga, de- the, the third Kasuga deity, uh, Ame no Koyane, uh, the most important ancestral Fujiwara God, the one who's called the Kasuga deity, uh, becomes identified with Jizo. So in that way, Jizo becomes an important stand-in for the Shinto gods. And what we see, uh, both in the case of the nude Jizo and in the, that I won't go into too deeply, and in this Rockefeller Jizo, which is connected to four other images um, that, that, that I don't talk about much in the book, but, but is a set with four other images uh, or, or kind of hypothesized images. Two or three of them would be lost, but we know they must have been there um, to represent the whole shrine uh, in Buddhist terms. So within the body of the new Jizo, there's other small statues and, and Buddhist relics and things like that to represent four different Buddhist deities within the one body. Uh, in the case of the, the, the uh, Rockefeller Jizo, when, when, uh, the person who bought it, it was, it's an interesting image because it was something that, uh, had been remarked upon by Japanese, I'll call them, uh, sort of governmental master curators in a certain sense during Japan's, uh, early, uh, kind of imperial colonial period as something that should be shown uh, along with great other works of Japanese art to foreign countries. And it was sent to the, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, what's it called? The, um, the, uh, ninth, the 1904 St. Louis, uh, I want to say it's Pan American. I don't think it is. Uh, exhibition. World, exhibition or World Fair or something? Yeah, it was a World Fair and it, it had its own name. It may have been, it may have been Pan American, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so it went to the 19, uh, in 1904 exposition in, in St. Louis. Uh, and it's, it's said that, that Ernst Fenelosa saw it there. I'm not sure if that's true or not, the great art historian. But anyway, uh, uh, it was bought in Japan by a, a, a man from the, uh, 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 good family. Uh, and he, uh, he worked, he wrote a book about it and he took wonderful photographs of it, uh, in, uh, uh, at the time that, that, that he, that he had bought it. Basically, he, he took a flashlight and he looked and he could see it was written on inside the statue. Around this time in Japan, statues began to be make, made of separate pieces of wood rather than one piece of wood. Uh, is a kind of a technological innovation. And, and one thing that's allowed sculptures to do, the most important thing I would say, uh, is to put in eyes carved of rock crystal. There were specialists who just made these rock crystal eyes. Uh, the, the lids were very, very 
almost shut on these images. But when you look at these images, particularly if you're in the proper position of sort of kneeling before the image in the position of a supplicant, you look up at this image and the eyes are are very striking because they show through the, the half-lidded gaze of the wood uh, and they look like real eyes. So through this technology, the eyes could be put in, but also a lot of empty space was created inside the statues. So that's why the new Jizo is able to have texts explaining who we this is who we are. This is why we did this. Uh, these are what these images mean. And in the case of the Rockefeller Gizo, what was done was the image was written inside, uh, on, directly on the wood in ink uh, with a brush. And there's a Sanskrit letter that represents Gizo. So the Sanskrit letter is written a thousand times inside the image, and then other prayers are inscribed there by different people. Uh, in the case of a similar image of the of the Bodhisattva Manjushri, uh, who's the the, de- the kind of corresponding deity of another Kasuga shrine, the, the Wakamiya of, of Kasuga, um, the, 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 the letter of Manjushri is written all over the inside of this image. So, so these were part of a set where the Buddhist deities represent the Shinto deities. So this was a monastic use that, and a kind of an aristocratic family use, if you will, uh, kind of very local and specific use that, uh, while it was continued to be, uh, very much practiced in that area. Uh, once the Jizo cult spread to a larger area, pretty much fell by the wayside, I would say. The close, the close association between uh, Jizo and the Kasuga deity, once, once the cult of Jizo leaves the Yamato area, uh, it's not made, uh, uh, it's not as, uh, a, uh, a connection that's made very strongly uh, anymore outside that area. Hmm. So, so uh, your book is obviously about the medieval period um, in Japan, but uh, you know we started talking about your interest in this uh, originally, and in, in going to Japan and seeing Jizo everywhere. So, um, just to sort of uh, go off a little bit from the book mm-hmm. um, yeah. and 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 discuss the ways in which Jizo remains relevant in Japan uh, today, if you can uh, yeah. speak to that. I, I know that um, you know there's there's clearly a connection between Jizo and uh, abortion and stillbirth. Um, but uh, my own experience is Japan, you know, Jizo is, is very obvious. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Jizo, you cannot miss Jizo because everywhere you go, there's Jizo. I mean, and, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, uh, Keitai, uh, cell phone, uh, charms, right. Jizo <laughs> is very, uh, widely represented, uh, often, you know, any kind of Kozo, any kind of picture of a young monk or a small monk, right. A novice monk, uh, is almost a stand-in for Jizo. So in this way, there's a lot of doppelgangers for Jizo. And another thing that happens uh, is that in Japan, this is, and this is not something that's true in in China or Korea, uh, a lot of deities, uh, images of deities that are not Jizo become called Jizo, come to be called this and that Jizo. Mm. So the folklorist Yanagida Kunio uh, uh, had an article called Jizo no Myoji, which I guess in, in English would be Jizo's last name, something like that. <laughs> so it's the tooth or, or uh, anyway, yeah, whatever. Jizo's family name, let's call it, because family names come first in East Asia. But uh, the tooth-pulling Jizo, you know, the thorn-pulling Jizo, the sweet potato Jizo, the tied-up Jizo, the, the, the um, uh, boat Jizo, you know, the dawn Jizo. So every different, the noodle Jizo, the Jizo that sends to the mountains, all these different kinds of names for Jizo. Yanagita Kunio said, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a way that, that this deity 
becomes instantiated in very local places and uh, in a very, uh, for, 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 for Yanagida anyway, a particularly Japanese way, uh, becomes a deity of the local place. Even though his name is Jizo, he's not just any Jizo. He's the Jizo of this place. And this is something that's really borne out. And this place and this function, right? This is something that's really borne out when we look at a prayer of a Nara period nun, um, or not Nara period, I'm sorry, a Kamakura record of a, of a, of a nun from the town of Nara, uh, who says, uh, you know, I won't pray at the Fukuchi in Jizo. Uh, I won't pray at the Chisoku in Jizo. And she goes through a list of about six or seven Jizo that were very famous in Nara. And she says, you know, I'm only going to pray at, uh, you know, this this particular Jizo temple, the temple of the Yata Jizo, because that's my deity, right? So the idea that that you don't just go to any Jizo image, especially if you're in a, a metropolitan area like that, you know, there's one that you pick. Um, so there's ways in which Jizo... Uh, is very much specific, each Jizo image, but then there's other ways in which there's a generalization, like I was going to say before. So, uh, at a friend's, um, uh, uh, Jodo, or it's not Jodo, yeah, Jodo Shu Temple in, um, uh, Odawara, for instance, there is an, an Amida image, I think a 15th century Amida image that had been in a fire. So the whole image is very, very black. Uh, but it has teeth that are made of bone or something like that. So they show up extremely white. Uh, they were, they were saved. Uh, they were cleaned and it's very, very white. So the image is famous for, uh, easing the pain of children in, in, in uh, in teething. Hmm. So it's called the Habuki, uh, it's originally called Habi, Habuki Midason, right? The, the, hmm. the teething Amida, uh, image. Um, but, Everyone calls it the Habuki Jizo-san. So if you look at the image, it's clearly an Amida image. It has a, a curly hair. It has an Ushnisha. It has hands are in a Bayamudra and so on. So it's clearly a, an Amida image. There's no mistaking it. And yet it's called Habuki Jizo-san because it has this um, uh, healing property. Uh, so it's much more familiar as a Jizo. In other places, Togenuki Jizo in, in, in Tokyo, a very famous uh, site for healing. Uh, the main image there, which is a secret image, uh, but, but people swallow actually uh, small papers, uh, pieces uh, printed to look like the main image, but you don't see the main image. But another thing people do there, besides swallow the pieces of paper with Jizo on them, um, is to take a scrub brush and scrub uh, a small wooden statue uh, of Guanyin, and people line up to do this, uh, and and they scrub the part of their body. There's water there. They scrub the part of their body that's ailing them, and so on. But people also call this small stone image, which is a Guanyin image. It's basically it's very hard to read what it is because it's so scrubbed away. But it is a Guanyin image. image but people call it the Jizo image. Uh, and then the last example that I'll give is that a lot of temples that you go to. Uh, especially Zen temples in Kyoto, but other places too, there will be an area of the temple uh, called Sentai Jizo, a thousand Jizos. And you go to this area, and what you see there is stacks and stacks and rows and rows of old, worn, broken graves. Uh, some of them have Jizo on them. Some of them have the two Buddhas of the... Uh, of the Lotus Sutra next to each other. Um, some of them have Guanyin and so on. Some of them have uh, just writing. Some of them you can't read at all. But they're wrapped in, these old graves uh, are wrapped in 
uh, cloth, often red cloths or other kind of cloths as a kind of a bib or an apron, um, and stacked there, and they're called a thousand gizos. So if people are doing construction, say, and old graves come up out of the ground, they will bring these graves to a temple, and the temple will put them with their thousand gizos. If a temple uh, has a grave that has been neglected for generation after generation, the family has died out, they're not taking care of the grave anymore, and it's becoming broken and worn, they will also move uh, the grave to a place like this. Uh, so there's a way in which the collective dead, the anonymous dead, also uh, become Jizo uh, in that sense. Well, you know, I, uh, I could I, I could hear these stories all day. <laughs> Just the ubiquity, like I said before, of Jizo across Japan is um, is is really fascinating. I really appreciate um, all of the hard work that you put into this uh, study, despite what <laughs> your uh, your professor said when you were in grad school and you wanted. To- <laughs> to study this huge topic um but we've 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 uh we're nearing the end and i want to okay. make sure that we uh ask our, our traditional final question which is um surely you must be working on something equally fascinating so um what uh can we expect from you in the future oh yes um it's not an unrelated topic uh surprisingly enough uh, when you hear what it is it doesn't sound too close but i'm working on uh the uh, theory and, and iconography, material culture and spread of a particular kind of a gravestone in Japan <laughs> that is really the, I would say, by this point or by from the, from the late medieval, really from the, early, from the early modern period on, the Edo period on, becomes the standard sort of representation of a grave, uh, which is called the Godin Noto, which means something like the uh, stupa or pagoda of five elements. Hmm. There's five elements in Chinese medicine, um, the five phases. Uh, uh, this is not those five elements. It's the Indian five elements. Anyway, it's a, it's a quite a ge- geometric uh, looking, unmistakable, unmistakable kind of gravestone that has a cube at the bottom and then a, a sphere and a pyramid and a hemisphere uh, topped by a sort of a jewel or a jujube shape. Um, Anyway, this kind of a grave uh, is something that isn't seen outside of Japan uh, and is developed in Japan uh, from the end of the 12th century on. Uh, And then from the 15th, 14th, 15th century or so becomes more and more popular uh, and and over time becomes uh, really the standard kind of grave. So I'm I'm researching the... uh, monastic networks that went into that and also the artisanal networks uh, that went into the creation of that. Uh, it's actually the same people, uh, and we didn't talk about this, but it's the same people who in the book uh, head east in Japan and make begin making um, uh, carvings of Jizo uh, as they did in the Yamato area. Uh, they're also making these Godin Noto, the first sort of monumental ones. Um, so uh, there's clearly a, a relationship there between the uh, faith communities in Japan, especially in the in the Nara area, the Yamato area, uh, that that, uh, that that both the Godinoto and Jizo in Japan, uh, in my estimation, uh, really originate in uh, that 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 makes the two books uh, come together. So that's the next project. Great, looking forward to looking forward to it. <laughs> Talk in a couple of decades. <laughs> Hopefully, it won't take you as long. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, uh, thanks again for uh, speaking with us today, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll let you get back to, to your hard work. Okay, thanks, Scott. Take care. 
You've been listening to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today we've been interviewing Hank Glassman, author of The Face of Jizo, Image and Cult in Medieval Japanese Buddhism. Thanks for listening.